0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. They say that dogs are man's best friend, but what about the cats? By the way, we have a lot of talks here as we prepare our show about dogs and cats and food uh, and other such things. The things that matter in life, right? And, you know, there are cat people, there are dog people, and we're not here to have an opinion about either. Though I have four pugs that all weigh in under 35 pounds, to which Stan says those aren't dogs, those are cats. And uh, I I disagree, Stan, but, you know, he's got his point. And then, of course, there are the cat folks, and we own a cat. We have a cat named Spunky, a boy, and he kills, well, anything that moves. And he's an outdoor cat that lives on our patio furniture, occasionally comes indoors, walks around for about five minutes and goes, I'm out of here, can't stand it, too boring, and wants to go right back outside and hunt and do all the things that Spunky does. Well, oftentimes for cities, cats are disposable. And here is one of our Hillsdale interns, Monty Montgomery, with a story about an organization that is sticking up for the kitty cats.
1: Cats in America are facing a serious problem.
2: Cats aren't being adopted from the McDowell County Animal Shelter.
3: You've got uh, so many sources, internet, that give them away free, so it's hard for us to compete. It's
2: $65 to adopt a cat from here that pays for shots and spaying. Plus, Blevin says cats are just not adopted as often as dogs, and these obstacles are reflected in the shelter's 95% kill rate for cats.
1: But one Kansas City nonprofit organization is doing something unique to solve this feline crisis.
4: KC Pet Project is a nonprofit organization that operates the Kansas City, Missouri Animal Shelter and we take in over 10,000 pets a year here in our largest no-kill shelter actually in Kansas City. And we do a lot of great work with adoptions all around the community. We adopt out uh, well over 6,700 pets each year. Some of that involves um, some really fun training things with our cats.
1: Training cats? It's not as crazy as it seems, and the Kansas City Pet Project is doing just that.
4: In 2017, we had a different scenario than we've ever had before, where we adopted out more cats than we did dogs for the first time since taking over the shelter. And a lot of that is because we do clicker training with all of our cats every morning, so we try to associate whenever people come in first thing in the morning, they hear that clicker, they get a treat. And then they start their cleaning process um, throughout the day. So the first positive interaction that they have every day is with a human. So that way they know that from here on out, they're going to, um, that human is going to take care of them and we can clean around them and help, um, you know, with some other enrichment things throughout the day.
1: And that clicker training leads cats to learn how to high five among all things. How does this training work exactly? Every time that the cat does something even close to what the trainer wants, such as lifting a paw, it hears a click and gets a treat and begins associating that action with getting the treat. Every time the cat puts its paw in the trainer's hand, click. Every time the cat high fives, click. This seems bizarre, but it absolutely works and is rooted in a concept called positive reinforcement.
4: We're also... Teaching some cats how to do tricks, we've been able to be successful with uh, teaching cats how to do high-five and do some other tricks through clicker training, even things like fetch that you wouldn't normally associate um, cats doing.
1: So cats, the pessimists of the animal kingdom, now seem more sociable to potential adopters, which has led to some fantastic results for the organization founded just six years ago
4: started here as a brand new organization here in Kansas City, Missouri, and in our first year took in nearly 8,000 pets and ended with over 90% of uh, what we call a live relief rate in the shelter industry. It's basically all animals that are coming in. Over 90% of them were leaving through positive outcomes, and that's through adoptions, through returning pets back home to the, their owners, and with working with rescue partners all over the country and even beyond yeah able to transfer some pets to Canada and pets.
1: And through KC Pet Project's hard and dedicated work, cats are being given back their nine lives.
4: Cats are just flying um, out of these adoption centers. We've ever been able to take our length of stay down from 41 days to about 25 days now, which helps us in so many ways. It helps us save more lives. Um, it helps with our, um, you know, our expenses and everything on those cats. If they're not there longer, then, um, you know, we're not having to spend as much on those cats because they're getting into homes faster. And actually, the cats are a lot healthier in the long run, too. So it's a really interesting program because they're less stressed, they're happier, um, they have, you know, sort of this great um, routine that they go through every day with our staff, and we're helping them become more adoptable so they can get into homes
0: faster. And thanks for that story, Monty. It's always nice to see and hear from organizations going out of their way to do something creative in order to solve a public problem. And I got to tell you, that's really creative. Cat tricks, fetching, my my dogs don't fetch. I want to send the pugs to the Kansas City Pet Project and see if we can get some high-fiving pugs when they leave that actually fetch. That'd be worth... Well, I'd pay good money to see that happen. Again, that's the Kansas City Pet Project, and what they're doing to save animals' lives is just... Well, it's just fantastic. So many cats just have to get put down around this country, and it's sad no one ever wants to see that happen, but sometimes that's what you got to do because sticking feral cats out into the population, especially rural areas... Just makes life, well, just a lot tougher for so many other animals. And my goodness, 41 days down to 25 days. I mean, this is really remarkable what they're doing. And again, our hats off to Kansas City Pet Project. And here at Our American Stories, we love to tell every kind of story. If you're interested in getting our newsletter, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up. We'll send you five great stories every week. That's five great stories every week. Sign up on our newsletter ouramericannetwork.org and we'll send you five great stories and that's both in audio form and in transcript form too. You can read it, you can listen to it however you want it. That's ouramericannetwork.org and once again hat tip to our Hillsdale intern Monty Montgomery, the Kansas City pet project, their story and the saving of so many kitty cats lives. Their stories. High five and cat stories here is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, the good, the happy, and sometimes the really tough and tragic. But always, we try to write about and talk about heroism and rising above life's most difficult circumstance. And our own Alex Cortez today brings us a story with one of our favorite storytellers, the president of the Foundation for
5: Economic Education, Larry Reed. In this great mortuary of the half-living, where nearby someone was wheezing his final breath, someone else was dying, another was struggling out of bed only to fall over onto the floor, another was throwing off his blankets, or talking in a fever to his dear mother and shouting or cursing someone out, while still others were refusing to eat or demanding water in a fever and trying to jump out of the window arguing with the doctor or asking for something, I lay thinking that I still had the strength to understand everything that was going on and take it calmly in my stride. That was on a relatively good day at the infamous Auschwitz concentration camp in 1942 in the words of the only known person to have ever volunteered to be a prisoner there. His name was Witold Pilecki. V. told Pilecki's family, going back as far as his great-grandparents, were thorns in the side of the Tsarist regime in Russia, which had occupied Poland along with Austria-Hungary and Prussia since the 1790s. Because of their opposition to the tyranny of the Tsarist regime, the family was exiled 700 miles to the northeast of St. Petersburg in Russia. So for several generations, this Polish family was not on Polish soil. They were exiled by the Tsar to a place that they were completely unfamiliar with. Pilecki himself was born in Russia in a small village called Olenets, but he always felt that Poland was his home and would someday be his home. In 1918, when World War I came to a close, Poland was uh, re-carved as a country. It reappeared on the map for the first time in 123 years. But immediately, the Russians, under the new regime of Vladimir Lenin and his Bolsheviks, invaded Poland. They did not want to give it up. So to secure Polish independence, that at least for the moment was on paper, Pilecki, while he was still a teenager, and so many other brave Poles had to pick up arms against the uh, Bolsheviks. And in a three-year war, they were successful at expelling them, and Lenin had to bring the troops back home. So it wasn't until 1921 that you could say Poland had indeed secured its independence as a nation for the first time since the 1790s. So Pilecki settled down and raised a family and painted. There was no indication that uh, Poland's independence was going to be threatened again. Only in the late 1930s, as Hitler began to rattle his saber, did it seem as though there could be yet another war. But still, on the eve of it, lots of people didn't see it coming. We had the Munich Agreement that was agreed to in September of 38 that basically said, hey, everything's fine, and we have a deal with Hitler, and as long as he doesn't go any further, uh, there'll be peace in the world. So there was that long period of almost 20 years when Poland was free of conflict, but it came on them with great ferocity when the Nazis invaded from the west and the Soviets, a couple of weeks later, invaded from the east in September of 1939. There was tremendous resistance from the Poles, not only the Polish army, but an underground resistance that arose pretty quickly. So the Nazis and the Soviets never had a quiet day. The Poles were have always been courageous people who don't take tyranny lying down. They've resisted it in every way imaginable, and Pilecki was one of them. Along with another gentleman, he co-founded a resistance movement and fought very bravely. In 1940, after a year of fighting, Pilecki and his men realized that something was going on at this sprawling complex near Krakow, Poland, that would become known as the Auschwitz concentration camp. Uh, It wasn't yet the notorious death camp it would soon become, but Pilecki and his men realized that many people were being taken there, not just Jewish people, and they wanted to know what's happening there. They felt that uh, whatever it was, the world needed to know about it. So Pilecki volunteered to get arrested by the Germans in the hope that they wouldn't shoot him, that they would, in fact, send him to Auschwitz. And of course, there was no guarantee that they wouldn't simply kill him on the spot and no guarantee that they would send him to Auschwitz. There were periodic roundups by the Germans of Polish citizens, and in one particular roundup of some 2,000, he simply walked into it and was one of uh, those 2,000 people arrested by the Germans. He did not supply his proper identity papers. He had them forged ahead of time, and that was largely to protect his family. He did not want his name or his activity to be traced back and make them the objects of any reprisals by the Nazis.
6: Did Vitold's wife know about and approve of
5: him doing all of this? She fully supported what he was doing, knowing full well what an enormous risk it was, probably expected to never see him again. But he got his wish, and after an interrogation and being roughed up, he was sentenced to Auschwitz. He was Auschwitz inmate number 4859. Pilecki knew when he was sentenced there that it was a place of no good, but it would be the next two to three years when Auschwitz really blossomed into this ghastly concentration camp that the world now knows. Upwards of two million people ultimately would be killed at Auschwitz. I'm sure that Pilecki had to think long and hard about how to get information out. I mean, he was stealing documents along with others that he recruited into his movement whenever they could. A movement
6: that he built up to more than 1,000 insurrectionists inside
5: Auschwitz. And then they had to find some way to get them out. There were 141 people who did manage to escape and some of those were people that Pilecki had recruited and he was sending material with them.
6: But Poletsky, the Auschwitz volunteer, didn't try to escape. He had more work to do.
5: There was a time in 1942 when Poletsky and some of his closest confidants in the resistance movement were able to rebuild the remnants of a radio transmitter with various spare parts and things that they could find around the camp to the point where they were actually able to broadcast. And for about a six-month period, They were broadcasting from this crude radio transmitter from inside Auschwitz. When you imagine hundreds and hundreds of guards on watch, fully armed at any moment, they were empowered to shoot you if they suspected anything. And yet this man and his men were able to get information out. And those reports, along with the documents he smuggled out and the testimony from people who escaped became known as Witold's Report, the most comprehensive eyewitness account ever compiled of the happenings inside the Auschwitz concentration camp. I'm sure that the Polish resistance had to find it incredibly inspiring to think that one of their own was on the inside and was getting this information out, that it was reaching the capitals of the allied nations. This had to be an incredibly inspirational thing to them. Just imagine if the opposite was the case, if they'd never heard anything from him, if no information was getting out. That would have been tremendously demoralizing. It would have said, hey, there's no hope. But the fact that he was active and busy and hadn't given up and was getting this information had to be of great inspiration.
6: V told with his report had done his part. It was over 100 pages long and reported that where he was was like another planet. There were sterilization experiments going on. There were three crematoria with gas chambers that were able to burn 8,000 people daily. At one point, he writes about some recently murdered Jews, quote, from the new transports, over a 1,000 a day were gassed. British officials received this report and found it so shocking that they didn't believe it, saying to themselves, why would the Germans who shot and starved Jews on a daily basis put in all this effort? They thought it was an exaggeration from a desperate Polish government who was seeking more help from the Allies. It wasn't, but they filed the report away with the note that there was no indication as to its reliability. The Nazis, though, took his report seriously. They just didn't know it was him. And when we come back, we're going to continue with the story
0: of Vitold Pilecki. And by the way, we tell these stories for an important reason. A recent survey found that two-thirds of millennials don't know what Auschwitz is. That's unimaginable, folks. And that's why we do these stories and why we partner with the USC Shoah Foundation to broadcast their incredible archive of 55,000 video testimonies from survivors, witnesses, and perpetrators of the Holocaust. And of course, it was a government that did all of this, the German government. And when we come back, more of Vitold Pilecki's story here on Our American Stories. American stories and we return to Alex's story along with Larry Reed of the only person to ever volunteer to go to Auschwitz, Witt told Pilecki. At this point Pilecki and his fellow renegades were able to smuggle their exhaustive
5: report detailing the crimes of Auschwitz to Western allies. The Nazis increasingly sensed that something was going on. Uh, documents were disappearing and occasionally a person escaped and Then I'm sure they got wind of the fact that the Western Allies were beginning to pick up on information from Auschwitz. But in any event, Pilecki never gave up. And even as the Nazis began to finger some of his close associates and execute them, he continued working until he felt that he had to get out, that they were getting close to him. And it was at that point on Easter Sunday in 1943 that Pilecki accomplished what only 143 other people in the history of Auschwitz ever could. He escaped and brought with him more incriminating documents that he and two fellow inmates who had escaped at the same time had stolen from the Germans. He made his way 200 miles to the north to Warsaw in time to take a leading role in the Warsaw Uprising in 1944.
6: A 63-day fight by 49,000 Poles attempting to kick the Nazis out of their country. The single largest military effort undertaken by a European resistance movement in World War II. This guy Poletsky doesn't stop, and history, known to him as the present, wouldn't have him stop yet either. Not yet.
5: The Warsaw Uprising was one of the examples of Polish bravery that is just about unparalleled in history. It was unfortunately crushed by the Nazis, in part because the Soviets sat outside of Warsaw with the capability to enter the city and put it to an end. Very deliberately Stalin did not, in spite of his assurances to the Western Allies, he did not send troops in to assist the Polish resistance during the Warsaw Uprising and just let the uh, the massacre take place because they knew that the Germans were doing their dirty work for them by eliminating much of what could become the post-war resistance to Soviet domination. The one thing you have to give credit to Stalin for is that he was thinking past the war. I think uh, Roosevelt in particular, maybe not so much Churchill, but they were focused on Winning the war, Stalin was thinking about winning the future, the future for Soviet communism. So his moves were calculated not only to assist in the defeat of the Nazis, but in positioning the Soviet Union as a dominant power in as much of Eastern Europe as would be possible after the war ended. Back to Poletsky, after
6: the end of what was immediately in front of him, the war saw uprising.
5: He was arrested, but the Nazis never put two and two together and realized, hey, this guy was in Auschwitz and had created a resistance movement there. If they had discovered that, they probably would have shot him on the spot. So he spent the last weeks of World War II in a German prisoner of war camp without the Germans realizing who they had.
6: In May 1945, his camp was liberated and the war would soon end. Pilecki was able to see his wife and children for the first time in five years, and then history came a knocking for him again.
5: During the summer of 1945, Pilecki, of course, was still with the Polish army, and he had a brief period where he saw his wife and two children again, but then the Polish army said, we need you in Italy. So he was stationed in Italy for much of that summer, but by September, it was becoming apparent to anyone looking very carefully at the situation that the Soviets were not going to leave Poland easily or quickly, uh, that they uh, perhaps intended to stay, and of course, we know they did. Here's an American
6: in Newt Gingrich's documentary, Nine Days That Changed the World.
7: My father served in World War II with a free Polish officer, and a Polish officer said to him one time, I'm glad that your President Roosevelt talks about four freedoms, it's very inspiring, but Poland's really never needed more than two, freedom from Russia and freedom from Germany.
5: So the Polish army said we need somebody on the inside again to go back to Poland and now to spy on the Soviets to get as much information about their intent and their actions as can be gathered. And who better to do that but Vitold Pilecki? So here this guy, after all that he experienced for the previous five years, is now sent by his own army back into his native country, undercover, for the purpose of spying on the occupying Soviet army and getting word out about what they were up to. His cover was blown. The Soviets discovered what he was doing, arrested him for espionage in 1947 and held him captive for a year. He endured torture during that time, was put on a public show trial, accused of espionage, convicted, and then in May of 1948, at the age of 47, he was executed by the communist regime.
6: In the last time that he saw his wife, immediately prior to his execution, Poletsky made a final request to her. Could she read to their children one of his favorite books, Thomas Akempis' The Imitation of Christ? Poletsky was a devout Catholic to the very end.
5: On the day of execution in May of 1945, May 25, in fact, his last words were recorded as, long live free Poland. And that certainly was the motto by which he lived his life from the day he joined the Polish army at the age of 17. The the man was absolutely fearless and totally committed. He endured unspeakable cruelties and hardships, and all because he wanted his country to be free, free from foreign invasion, free from uh, tyrannical governments. And even though he had a family to think about, uh, his first love, I think, was freedom for not only his family, but all of his native country of Poland, and I have just enormous respect for that. After World War II, with Poland being a communist country now, governed by a puppet Soviet regime, really, the story of Pilecki was suppressed, and the reason was the Polish Communist government knew that you couldn't tell the story, the full story, of Witold Pilecki without revealing what he had done after the time that he resisted the Nazis. I mean, They would have loved to have had the story told of what he had done to resist the uh, Germans. But, of course, everybody would then ask, well, what did he do afterwards? And then you would have to tell the story of the fact that he was against the tyranny of the Soviet Union, too. It was against the communist regime. So instead of having any of that story being told, they decreed that his very name could not be spoken in public. His own family were advised by the government that they could be penalized, would be penalized, jailed, if they spoke of Witold Pilecki in public. It wasn't until after 1989 and the liberation of Poland from the communist yoke that finally it was no longer illegal to speak of Vitold Pilecki. On March 9th,
6: 2016, Larry Reed got the opportunity of a lifetime, visiting with Pilecki's son, Andres.
5: It was apparent during our conversation that even though you know, he suffered the loss of his father, uh, all these years later he seemed to be a, a man content and, and happy and When I asked him, why are you happy, or something to that effect, his response was, because my father's story is now becoming known. And great job
0: on that, Alex, as always, and thanks to Larry Reed. And his book, by the way, Real Heroes, is terrific. 40 stories about 40 different heroes, and it's available at Amazon.com. And we tell this story for a reason, because first... Ten million Polish Americans know it more than likely, or should, and there are 70 million Catholics in this country. And we also tell it because, well, we know the power of God and how totalitarians hate and drive out God anytime they can. And when we can tell that story of the individual and their heroism and the source of that heroism. We'll do it every day here on Our American Stories. He told Polecki's story, in a way a great world history story here on Our American Stories. and this is our american stories and now it's time for one of our favorite recurring features the story of a song and we've done every kind of song from every type of musical background from pink floyd's another brick in the wall to kenny chesney's there goes my life the rolling stones give me shelter and ray charles's georgia on my mind and now it's time for greg Hengler's take on our favorite recurring feature if you've been to a wedding any time between
8: now and 2008 Chances are, you've heard Beyonce's Get Out of Your Seat and Dance anthem about men's unwillingness to propose or commit called Single Ladies, Put a Ring on It. Putting the lyrics aside, this song would be nothing without the irresistible and exuberant beat that sinks deep into your soul. The song is driven by staccato bounce-based hand claps and a keyboard. This hypnotic and irresistibly contagious beat gets everybody on the dance floor. What is it about this song that does that like no other? After some digging, I was taken on a fast, fun, and fascinating journey, linking what we hear in Beyonce's Single Ladies to what is heard in almost every black church to this very day. Let's begin by taking a trip back to the start and work our way up to Beyonce. Here's music historian David King.
9: A lot of people when they think of gospel music think of the sound of the vocal, uh, they think of spiritual aspects of gospel, but they very often don't think enough about the rhythmic aspects and the driving beat. Don't let it
10: catch you
9: Gospel has that, tum, 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 right? It's influenced by boogie woogie and other styles, and that pounding, sort of frenzied aspect of gospel is really important to its spiritual aspects. It's what caused people in churches to to catch the spirit and to go wild.
10: Yes.
9: But it directly got transferred into rock and roll music through the gospel fervor and energy of people like Little Richard.
0: Oh my soul. we gonna do a little thing for you. Saturday night, and I just got
10: paid. Money, no, I'm on a rip now. I'm on shigida. I'm on the rock
8: here's music historian Todd Boyd.
11: A guy like Little Richard, as with any sort of black artist from that era, is giving you the black church as well as the black juke joint.
8: Here's Little Richard's drummer, Charles Connor.
9: Richard said, "I want to bring you to the trans station. I want you to hear something. So now listen to the trans. The trans going off." He said, a wife, when they pick up speed, cha 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 He said, what kind of notes are those? I say, those are eight notes. He said, well, that's what I want you to play behind me.
8: Here's the man responsible for the Motown sound, record producer Lamont Dozer.
5: A new form of rock and roll, as we call it, came into play during the 60s when that was ushered in by Companies like Motown.
4: When there was a nice backbeat, beautifully sounding, good, balanced sounding records, All America.
8: Here's Annie Lennox and Ben Harper. Motown music brought my world into abundance of color and soulfulness because those melodic lines and those fantastic chord changes and those beats. As soon as you heard the very first notes, you knew exactly what this was. It came out sounding like God. Mokey Robinson. On the very first day of Motown,
9: Barry Gordy was there and four other people, and I, I was among them, and he said, okay, I'm starting this record company. We are not going to only make black music. We're going to make music for everybody. We're going to make music for the world. We're going to make music with some great beats and some great stories, and we're going to always do quality music. We have go places in the south, taking our, our town reviews down there. You know, there's a big stage in the middle of the hall, and white people on one side and black people on the other side. It's segregated, but, you know, maybe you can do something about it. The next time we got to those places, the kids, they were dancing with each other. They were talking intermingling, holding hands. This little black boy holding a little white girl's hand or vice versa. That was his idea of what he wanted his record company to be.
8: Here's producer Greg Philengaines. The
9: basic elements or the main elements of the Motown sound had to do with a very solid but controlled gospel sound. It was rooted in, in a, a, a big beat, lots of bass, tambourine, drums, you know, very, very rhythmic.
10: I said I love someone, but I know where I'm going to find.
0: James Brown and the J.B.s in the mid-60s changed the sound of of what dance music is. If you listen to to, um, Live at the Apollo, it's a great band. It's a great show. It's still very bluesy, very churchy, the show is.
10: Come
8: on! Here's Sheila E., Arthur Baker, Questlove, and Q-Tip. It was the drum playing...
7: It was funkier than than Motown. Motown wasn't really funk.
1: That to me is the hypnotic power of the James Brown effect.
9: He influenced Sly. He influenced Stevie. He influenced Prince.
8: He influenced dance music. Indeed, he did. Now let's take this back to where we started. Here's the hit-making, songwriting production team for single ladies, Terrius the Dream Nash and Chris Tricky Stewart. All aboard for New York City!
9: Trick started this beat, just the drum and the, and the quirky sound that that we heard.
10: And I just sat in the
9: back. I just thought about if I was Beyonce, I would say what. I'm thinking, I'm quiet. He's not I, giving not me giving no, no love. Yeah. He's, not, he's not, we're not I'm in it nothing. together, he's just. I'm giving him nothing, I'm Jedi. Trick, stop the beat. And I look at him and was like, what's wrong with you, man? What are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, well, what do you mean? I was gonna start another beat. I was like, yeah, you just go and sit in, there, he's sit like, in he's the high like, beat, right? He's like, I got the whole thing. He's like, I just wrote the whole song. <laughs> The anatomy is there, the heart's there, the lungs, the the stomach, you know, the, the the I just have to put the legs on. She came by to just kind of poke her head in and kind of mm-hmm. hear what it was. And she was like, oh, and she immediately, there was no lyrics typed out, like there was no nothing. It was like, yeah, let me get with that. Like, and, and the next thing I knew, she was on the other side of the booth. Singing, singing, and we were like, "Yeah, this is this is this is this is happening." He's thinking about how to connect the dots lyrically. I'm thinking about B is from Houston. I'm thinking about Southern. I'm thinking about like to me, it's a church beat. So I just started with the. It's like that's a sanctified yeah, she's beat. A that, she's a Southern girl. I can see the paper fans in the church and the the wooden benches and the the reverend and the baptisms that are going on and knowing what's happening after that. That's everything I get from one sound. So I'm like, how do I get this southern girl on the dance floor?
8: I'm Greg Hangler, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And great job, as always, Greg. And there you have it. Who would have thunk it? from the gospel pews of the american south throw in a lot of that great rhythmic talent of Beyonce and of course the producers and we're talking about Terius the Dream Nash and Chris Tricky Stewart the story of a song single ladies put a ring on it here on our american stories This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and every sphere of American life. We tell you good stories, redeeming stories, uplifting stories, and tough stories, too. And today, we hear from Jeff Katz. He's a radio host in Richmond, Virginia, and he's also a columnist for the Boston Herald. And here he shares his deeply personal story about his teenage daughter, Julia, who has what doctors call global developmental delays and disabilities. And all of that means is that she functions physically and mentally at the level of a toddler. Here's Jeff reading a note that he wrote to his daughter.
7: Dear Julia, I'm writing you this note on March the 7th, 2018. Today is the day that you turn 15 years old. It's an interesting day for me and for mom, but it's another day for you. You're not like other kids, my sweet. You've never made a big deal of your birthday. You've never asked us for any type of a special gift. Not for your birthday, not for Hanukkah, not for Christmas. You've treated each and every day in the same way. Mom will wake you up and you'll have a smile on your face when you see her. She'll play some of your music and you'll smile even more. You may laugh or giggle or squeal, but there will not be any words. You won't complain about having to go to school. You won't be happy to hear that it is a snow day. You won't celebrate the fact that today is 15 years since you were born. Most 15-year-old girls would be thinking about clothing, college, or a car. By 15, many dads have already had to warn their daughters about some dopey boy. But today, you'll watch your favorite episode of Jack's Big Music Show, enjoy your cereal, and be on the lookout for cookies wherever you can find them. Mom and I know that you will be with us as long as we're alive. But we worry about what happens after we're gone. You have two wonderful brothers, and I pray every day that we have raised them well enough to know that they will need to look after you someday. You may be our middle child, but you'll always be the baby. Even as you get older, according to the calendar, as mom told me yesterday, you are timeless. You'll always be my pipsqueak, despite the fact that the years are flying by. No, we're not exploring potential careers or making plans for your wedding. We're still hoping that we'll be able to help you move from diapers to the potty someday. You live today the same way you did when you were about 18 months old. You don't speak, and you only recognize a few words, but oh, the words that you know. Kisses and cookies. No matter how filled up you are, there's always room for a cookie or two. You don't understand when I ask you how your day was. But you become laser beam focused when you hear the crinkle of the wrapper on a package of something sweet. No matter how sweet that candy, it's still eclipsed by your genuinely sweet smile. So many people live their lives asking for things, demanding things, accumulating things. Most people never take the time to stop and savor a piece of cake or breathe deeply to appreciate a gentle breeze like you do. I hear people in this world use horrible, insulting language to describe kids like you and I want to shake them, yell at them. Some mock disabled kiddos like you and I feel like crying. You don't understand their words, but I do. Sometimes I really wish I did not. We never thought you would crawl, let alone walk, but you showed us. Your situation and challenges and disabilities have caused me to question my belief in God on some days and have served to strengthen it on others. You don't speak, but somehow you are able to brighten my days in ways that I never imagined. Without a single solitary word, you've made me a better man and touched countless people. Hearing you cry ties my stomach into knots, but your giggle is truly the happiest sound that I have ever heard. I know you'll never read this, nor would you understand this if I were to read it to you. So let me just say... Kisses and cookies, Jules Bagules. I tell you today what I have told you on every March the 7th since 2003. Daddy loves you more than you will ever know.
0: And thank you for that reading, Jeff. You've made me a better man, he wrote. Your giggle is the happiest sound I've ever heard. On Julia's unexpectedly learning how to walk, Jeff told the Boston Herald that, quote, it was one of the proudest days of my life, one of the happiest days of my life. But I also have to tell you, it's a terrifying situation because Julia is like a toddler. She has no real understanding of, oh, the stove is hot, or I could fall here or trip you there. We're thrilled that she's trying to explore on her own a little bit, and we're terrified at the same time. And this is true for all of us parents, but even more so for Jeff and his bride. Jeff has said that it's tough to realize that he'll never get to embarrass Julia by dancing with her at her wedding. But, quote, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me, end quote. Last but not least, he said these words, quote, she's never spoken a word, she's never said a word to anybody. But she's touched more people in her 15 years on this earth than I ever have. Her joy is pure. To me, she's like the face of God. She's the essence of good, and she shares her joy with everybody. And to everyone out there who's in a similar situation, we share these thoughts. Share them to us. Share them with us. Here at Our American Network.org. That's Our American Network.org. Jeff Katz's story, his daughter Julia's, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever. And we're following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two and a half year adventure exploring the American West. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our 30th feature on what happened on these days in history over 200 years ago.
6: The Missouri River has taken the core of discovery all the way from St. Louis to Montana. The last episode, it was unclear where the river they were on was. They were still on a river. They just didn't know if it was the Missouri. You see, a second river called the Marias had converged into the Missouri, and then the river suddenly forked into two seemingly co-equal branches, a northern one and a southern one. And you couldn't tell which river was the crucial one the Missouri all of their 31 men thought it was the northern branch but the two captains were convinced it was the southern one so at great risk to the expedition and to their men's trust in them they chose their two-person opinion over the groups that was over 15 times as large And so they descended down a river and whether they would now confront what was said to be the true Missouri's first great obstacle, the Great Falls, would confirm their choice or reject it.
11: So Lewis pushed on ahead of the rest of the crew, partly to confirm that the branch they were on was the proper Missouri, but also because he was very eager to see the Great Falls about which he had heard back at the Mandan and Hidatsa villages and probably even in St. Louis. And these people of the 18th century knew that almost all rivers have a fall line. They come out of the mountains and that at a certain point there is a falls or series of rapids and then they're down on the open plains and this is true of the Potomac River. The fall line is at Alexandria and the James River. The fall line is at Richmond and so on. So he pushes on ahead with just a handful of men, and they're essentially non-entities. As I've said I think before, Lewis liked to be the one to make the big discoveries, and he often found a reason, I think at times even made up a reason, to go on ahead so that he could be there not alone, he was almost never alone, but mostly alone with the kind of people he took on these discovery moments were sort of the kind of people you see on a Star Trek episode, and you know those people in the red shirts are going to get killed by the aliens. Lewis tried to take essentially unimportant people with him at the major discovery moment so that he would be the one and and he wouldn't have to share this extraordinary moment in in exploration when you're the first to discover the source, the first to get to the Pacific Ocean, the first to discover the falls. Seas, mist rising over the river and eagles uh, soaring in there pattern over the river and he comes to the brink and looks down on what he said was the grandest object that he had ever seen second only perhaps to niagara for sublimity this had to be really good for lewis and clark the two captains because everybody else thought that they were wrong lewis and clark proved to be right this probably consolidated their leadership more than anything else that had happened so like Anything that happened after that, if the men were like, I don't know if that's the right thing you should do. I mean, I'm not sure that's the right branch. They had to remember, wait a minute, at the key moment, all of us unanimously thought the captains were wrong. The captains were right, and we had better defer to them because they are better trained, they know more, they're, they're wiser than we are. That's why they're captains. And so this probably was a, if, you're, if you were doing a book on leadership uh, rules from Lewis and Clark, Being right and being confirmed in your rightness when everyone else thinks that you're doing the wrong thing is a tremendous asset to any leaders. There are five falls in central Montana at Great Falls. There's the main one, and this is the one that Lewis is talking about, and then four others, all impressive. So he grambles down to the falls, which is about 90 feet vertical, much wider. And he takes out a, a notebook and writes out a description of the falls. and It's a couple of thousand words in length. It's mostly geographic, sort of scientific, but partly it's in a well-worn literary tradition of sublimity. He's probably basing this on what he's read in Mackenzie's journals and the journals of Captain Cook and others. So Lewis is self-consciously trying to wind himself up To produce a magnificent description and he says all the right things he says this has been hidden from the eyes of civilized man from the beginning of time that he is the eyes and ears of the Enlightenment here that the first impression that he brings back to the civilized world will help to set the tone for its understanding of this extraordinary place and then he realizes that he's not equal to the task that he lacks the capacity to do justice to this place
5: after writing this imperfect description, I again viewed the falls and was so much disgusted with the imperfect idea which it conveyed of the scene that I determined to draw my pen across it and begin again.
11: This is what's known in literary tradition as the inexpressibility topos. It's very common for someone to be at a great mountain or a canyon or a waterfall or some other extraordinary thing, and, and to say, I can't, I can't do justice to it. I wish I could find the language to describe what I'm looking at, but I feel impotent and weak in the face of its magnificence. These explorers are almost required by tradition to, to talk this way. No matter how good their description of the place, They have to, they have to pretend, at least, that it's pathetic and inadequate. And Jefferson himself played in this game in Notes on Virginia, he describes the natural bridge uh, in western Virginia in precisely these same terms. And he says, it's impossible for the feelings of the sublime to be greater than they are in this place. And he's on top of the natural bridge. And he says, I, I looked down and I had to get down on my hands and knees. And, and being there even for a moment gave me a violent headache. You know Whether Jefferson actually had a violent headache is disputable, but he, he, Jefferson, is also in this distinguished literary tradition of the inexpressibility and the, the sense that the sublime is something that is so magnificent that it kind of gives your brain a little temporary nervous breakdown and you become overwhelmed and you may actually have a headache. You have a, it, It's painful to see something that's beyond the capacity of the human imagination to embrace. And Lewis goes farther and says, I wish I had the painterly capacity of the landscape painter Salvador Rosa. I wish I had the poetic capacity of the British nature poet James Thompson so that I might bring back a just description of this place for the enlightened world. But alas, says Lewis, I have none of these things. And so he then has to accept that his description is as good as he's going to be able to make it.
5: But then reflected that I could not perhaps succeed better than pinning the first impressions of the mind. This was fruitless
11: and vain. So for Lewis, he's seeing this as an explorer and as someone who is in a well-worn literary historical tradition of exploration. The other men of the expedition are now going to have to get around this barrier because it's a water voyage and the river is their road. The Great Falls of Montana turn out to be the first impediment that they have come to all the way from St. Charles, Missouri. So they've gone over 2,000 miles on the Missouri River without a single actual impediment to the road. Now suddenly they reach not only a barrier, but a barrier of five falls. And they're not going to be able to go any farther towards the source of the Missouri or towards the Pacific Ocean until they have portaged around the falls. So a couple of days later, Clark appears, along with Patrick Gass, who's their sort of carpenter engineer. Gass, by the way, says that the falls are very terrible. So he sees it much more from the point of view of the challenge that lies ahead of getting tons of material around a uh, more than 20-mile portage And so Clark and Gass and others then lay out a road. They stake out a road on the south side of the Missouri to go around the Five Falls. And for the next two and a half weeks, the expedition does nothing but haul its gear around so that they can then put in their canoes on the other side and continue towards the source of the Missouri River.
0: And great job, as always, Alex. And thanks, as always, too, to our Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at clayjenkinson.com. And he's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. And yes, Jefferson deserves it. The most epic road trip ever, the Lewis and Clark story, the core of Discovery story, and in the end, the full birth of a nation... As a result of the Louisiana Purchase, all of that here on our American stories. stories and we love going on road trips because americans love road trips and when we're on those trips we talk to people across this great beautiful country and we sent some of our team on a tour of the south not long ago and on that trip they found themselves at the coca-cola museum in vicksburg mississippi take it away faith
10: I'd like to buy the world a home And furnish it with love Grow apple trees and honeybees And so white turtle doves I'd like to teach the world to sing Sing with me I'd like to buy the world a home And keep it company
2: Coca-Cola <laughs> as American as apple pie. It began with a flavored syrup combined with carbonated water that was invented by Atlanta druggist John S. Pemberton in 1886. It has gone on to become one of the most beloved refreshments of the modern world. Coca-Cola's popularity declined for years until a businessman named Asa Griggs Candler took over the business following Pemberton's death in 1888. But it wasn't the soda fountain drink that really got it going. It was the ability to get it anywhere, anytime, anyplace. And the first bottling of Coca-Cola didn't happen until eight years later with a German immigrant family.
3: My name is Nancy Bell, and I am the executive director of the Vicksburg Foundation for Historic Preservation. And this is the Beanhorn Coca-Cola Museum in Vicksburg, Mississippi. This is where Coca-Cola was first bottled anywhere in the world in 1894. This building was built in 1890, and this is where the Horns had a candy store. They also made cakes. They did all kinds of things. They bottled their own soda water. It was a strawberry flavor. And so, of course, they had their own bottles with Horn Candy Company on them in which they bottled that. Um, They operated a soda fountain. And in the soda fountain, of course, there were a variety of flavors. Um, there were literally hundreds of flavors of drinks in those days. And so, you know, Mr. Beatenhorn had, had a selection of drinks other than his own. If you wanted his, he, as I said, had his own bottles. And so he would put his, his drink in, the, in a bottle and then um, bottle up a case of it. He'd send it uh, out to your location if you wanted to. They bottled for half a day, and then they would deliver for the other half of the day. They came from Germany um, to to Vicksburg uh, by way of New Orleans, I believe. And um, they were candy makers, and so they had their they made candy in their little little shop. And then, you know, eventually they added, just like most entrepreneurs, you know, they added more things to it. And they looked, um, I think they, they looked to the future and they saw, okay, people are doing um, soda fountains. You know, soda fountains became more and more, and so they, they included that into their. They were baking cakes, they were doing, and then, oh wow, yeah, we can bottle our own now. You know, I, I think they were just good entrepreneurs. I think they were just um, um, smart and not. Um, thinking about the present, they were looking to the future. And I'm not sure the Coca-Cola company was doing that at that time. They were saying that, yeah, we're, we're distributing in the Southeast, and yes, we're, we're getting others to do it for us too, and um, our money though is, is in soda fountains, that's where it is. I don't think they thought really ahead of that because they were in Atlanta and because they were in an urban area and they, you know, I think that made a difference too. As opposed to Mr. Biedenhorn. And while I said Vicksburg was the biggest city in the state at that time, we still were, were, were very rural as well. I mean, he would deliver to picnics. You know, I mean, you know, we're, ha- we're having a picnic out here with, you know, 50 people. Can you deliver? Yeah, heck yeah. So as time went on, um, people became really uh, more a fan of Coca Cola than mm-hmm. of Mr. Biedenhorn's flavor and they wanted to know why they couldn't get coca-cola also. Why, why could they only get his flavor in a bottle and not coca-cola in a bottle because you know when you came in you came to a soda fountain big beautiful soda fountain and you got it in a really pretty little glass but at the end you left the, the glass you couldn't take the coca-cola with you. So, so many people asked that he um, decided that he would bottle some coca-cola. He bottled in his own bottles He bottled up a case, he sent it to Atlanta to ask for permission, and they said, yeah, you can bottle if you want to, won't amount to anything, but if you want to do it, go ahead. And of course, that's really what launched Coca-Cola, was that ability to get it anywhere, anytime, anyplace. Soda fountains were the thing of the day. Um, They were, you know, the places you went, they competed with each other to make bigger, more elaborate, all of that. So I think the Coca-Cola company didn't see past that. The horns, um, you know, continued to make candy, they continued to um, operate their soda fountains, and then when they found that Coca-Cola was really where they could make more money, um, then they built other buildings and started of course wholesale distributing of, of Coca-Cola in this area. Um, they did not have a contract at that time with Coca-Cola, but Coca-Cola of course knew that they were doing this. In 1902, Coca-Cola signed with Chattanooga as the very first actual contract, you know. Um, and at that time they said, now you can have these areas, but you can't have any areas that Mr. Bighorn is already bottling in. So of course they recognized what he was doing. And then they ended up with a contract with him um, for different areas.
2: Nowadays, we can get soda anytime we want. We simply go to the store and pick up some bottles or cans of Coke. But this process of bottling was no easy task when it first began.
3: We have a reproduction of the bottling works that was first used to bottle Coca-Cola. So what we forget is, while yes, you could go down to the store and buy um, carbonated water, you didn't buy it in tremendous amounts. So it really made a lot more sense to make your own carbonated water. So you had to use marble chips, you had to use acid, you had to You know, you had to to drop the marble chips into the acid and then rotate it carefully. And then that would roll into another container where there was water and then you slowly rocked that until it was incorporated into the the water and and all of that. So first you had to do that. And then you had to um, take the syrup was in a large container up high and that would flow into your bottle X amount and then, they, then you filled it with the carbonated water. And then, of course, you still had to put, early on, you had to do the rubber stopper with the wire. Um, these people would wear um, big, heavy leather jackets, wooden shoes, big um, leather gloves and a mask because they blew up occasionally. So it was not necessarily you know, the safest occupation. In 1915, the Coca-Cola Company decided that they needed a bottle that was their own, their own bottle. Because um, all by then, of course, there were plenty of bottlers, but they were all using their own bottles. And so the Coca-Cola company had a contest, essentially, where they said, we want a design that if you take that bottle and you throw it on the, the ground, and it breaks into 100 pieces, any piece you pick up, you're still going to know it's a Coca-Cola bottle. And if you think about it, and you think about that, that that hobble skirt bottle that has the ridges down the side and all of it, even if you don't pick up the piece that has Coca-Cola on it, um, you would still recognize it as a Coca-Cola bottle. So the company that won was the Root Company. That Root bottle then became the, the Coca-Cola bottle or the hobble skirt bottle that we call it. Some people call it the May West bottle because it's got that shape of May West or at least part of her anyway, uh, but so it's, um, but it's a great bottle, and uh, used, of course, for, for still use today. Now, in 1994, they took that bottle, which they had been using over and over and over and over again. They made it a throwaway bottle, and they made it an eight ounce bottle instead of a six and a half ounce bottle. But, you know, today we still sell the little bottles that look like, you know, the six and a half ounce bottles.
0: And when we come back, more of this remarkable story The Coca-Cola story, Vicksburg story, and by the way, we know Vicksburg mostly from this gigantic and important Civil War battle back in the 1860s. But for me, as a gigantic Coca-Cola fan, I know Vicksburg for that bottle that we were just talking about that I'm holding in my hand and my favorite thing to drink in the world when we come back, the story of the Coca-Cola Museum in Vicksburg, Mississippi, More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we've been listening to the story of how Coca-Cola came to be, and we've been hearing from Nancy Bell, the Executive Director for the Historic Preservation in Vicksburg, Mississippi. And by the way, you'll hear from us often floating out into the country and talking to these great little museums, uh, historical keepers of all kinds of things, from those great museums in Philadelphia about our nation's history, straight through to the Well, the Mascot Hall of Fame and the Toaster Museum, there are places around this country we cover and want to cover. And now back to the story and back to Nancy Bell.
3: All right, we have a a large collection of bottles and they they run from, you know, 1886 to to the current day. Um, And... uh, we Unfortunately, we don't have all of them um, because there are literally thousands of them. So people will come in and they'll look at our collection and they'll say, oh, well, you don't have such and such. And then, you know, I'll just have to send it to you. And most of the time they do. It's fast It's just great, you know, to get a box and go, well, they really did do that once they got back home. Um, and so we have a Harry Potter bottle, which is one of my favorites. Um, so it's from England. Um, but the Paris, France ones are actually not glass; they're aluminum, but they're pink and white, and they're just cool. Um, so we have lots of sports teams. We have lots of anniversaries of um, cities and states and counties and things like that. Um, we have um, we, we have a whole lot from across the world.
2: All around the store and museum, there are tons of old-fashioned advertisements. A lot of what they have has come from donation. Some of Nancy's favorites are the ads from World War II. They seem to capture that wholesome Americana feeling that is so associated with Coca-Cola.
3: Some of my most favorite advertisements, and advertisements are something that we deal with a lot here, um, is the, the advertisements that have to do with World War II. Um, because, of course, they ship tons and tons of Cokes over. Um, to Europe and to to Asia and you know to it was it was kind of a feel-good thing you know for them and of course if you look at the advertising for coca-cola it is feel-good advertising I mean it is wholesome it is you know Um, and so uh, to me the World War two ads are just great it's there's one that says like he's coming home tomorrow you know, it's, it, I'm gonna get my Coca-Colas ready, you know, <laughs> my, my husband's coming home tomorrow, but it, so it was yeah. feel good advertising. So in, um, so by World War II, of course, they were already shipping lots of stuff over there. It was already a part of the culture of other countries. Um, and the, and of course you see, even in the advertise, some other advertising that they did, they would highlight other countries where they were selling that.
2: Coca-Cola had become something that was uniquely patriotic. It's sold everywhere, but what about it makes it so American?
3: Coca-Cola is the best-known icon. And it is the best-known icon. It is made it was made in America. And so to me that's what makes it, you know, American is that it is a tremendous American story. It is this pharmacist who literally was dying and you know he's searching for a medicine or whatever. He invents the world's most popular, most recognized drink, and um, unfortunately dies before he can see it. You know, becomes something very, you know, huge. <laughs> it's a piece of home that's very, very easy for someone to recognize when you're in a different country. Um, and while those some of those flavors later on became a different flavor, because if you've gone to the Coca-Cola plant, you know in Atlanta, if you've gone to their museum, um, they give you some tastes of, of Coca-Cola from other countries, and they're different. Part of that's the water. Part of that's just what makes what what they enjoy. But if you're if you are a serviceman in wherever in on Earth, and you get a Coca-Cola, it's coming from the United States and it's gonna taste like home. That's what you know it to be. So, to me, that makes it, you know, that makes it America. It is a
2: wholesome American drink, but
3: Coca-Cola had a little
2: bit of a sketchy background.
3: And in talking about the wholesome thing, then you, of course, get into the whole, the whole um, discussion about cocaine and whether there was cocaine in Coca-Cola. And, um, you know, as I said, one of the biggest things about them was that they believed it to be a wholesome product, and uh, it did have cocaine in it, and um, so it was, if you can't get away from it, it's the coca leaf and the cola nut, and that's how you get coca-cola. So it had, did have cocaine, they maintained, it had a trace of cocaine, that it did not have much, just a trace, and of course it had a tremendous amount of caffeine, so, you know, that probably uh, it was a part of it as well. However, they they were you know, petitioned some by um, parents who didn't like that in there. It was, while it wasn't a new drug because, of course, Indians had had it for thousands of years, it was really new to the, you know, the the population of the United States. But it they had thought it might help your stomach. They thought it might help you and all these things. They put it in gum. They put it in all kinds of things. So it was not, you know, just in this. Um, And so, Mr., well, Dr. Pemberton, who developed it, he was ill, he was also addicted to another drug, and so he was really kinda looking for something else to help him. And so that's one reason why he included it. Plus, he did a lot of research with the Indians and found that, well, maybe this'll help, you know, whatever. Well, when it was, when he passed away, and it became, um, the the ownership became um, under someone else, it was under Mr. Candler, then Candler didn't like this. He didn't like it being called dope. He didn't like I mean he wanted it to be a wholesome thing. And so in nineteen oh three he took the cocaine out of Coca Cola. Now he the coca leaf is still in there because they just decocainized it. Because the coca leaf is something that gives the flavor to Coca Cola. So but he did take it out and, and took full-page ad saying, you know, I took the cocaine out of Coca-Cola. Oh yeah, there was only a trace amount of cocaine. And, and, and for a while he was even saying it wasn't there, but there was a lawsuit and he kind of had to say it in, in court. And so, you know, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, it's out there, yet. but, um, and, and if you look at the ingredients early on, I mean, it's very obvious, but um, so he, yes, he, he was very proud of the fact that, you know, he had, because he wanted it to be a wholesome thing. It's a family drink. You know, okay. it's not alcohol, and that was one reason why I didn't want the you know the cocaine in there. It's not alcohol. It's it's something that's that is. Um, I can't say that it's necessarily good for you, but it's not bad for you. Um, and so it's something, yes, that is is um, clear, clean, good ingredients, um, nothing bad in there that's gonna you know that's gonna harm you. And um, the advertising was families and. You know, good situations and you know, um, happy events. Um, a woman swimming. You know, I mean, it was it was um, actually more of those type of outdoor events and things like that than early on. It was like sitting in a bar, not a bar bar, but you know, one of our bars, like a soda fountain and drinking it. But but lots more of the outdoor type atmosphere things going on family events things like that and we have a it's very hard to read but we have the handwritten um ingredients that were first in in 1886 um and of course it has sugar it had caffeine it had the the coca leaf the cola nut um caramel flavoring um i mean it's just a whole list of things and and that's you know who knows how much of this and how much of that pemberton ended up you know doing but when Mr. Candler got it, he said there were entirely too many ingredients. You know, it was just, it was hard to, to put all of that together, and, um, and did we really need all those ingredients to come up with this really good taste? Now, how he worked that out, I have no idea. But apparently, he did take some things out. And um, so, you know, today, you can read the ingredients. I mean, it's essentially the same thing. I mean, it's... it's Um, without cocaine, of course. But it changed then. I think it's probably changed a little bit through time. In the 1980s, of course, they went from cane sugar to corn syrup, which to me changed the taste. You can still get Mexican Cokes, which we sell here that that have cane sugar in it. To me, that's what it's supposed to taste like.
8: Coke has a bright flavor, a distinctive flavor all its own that has never been equaled. It's bracing too. Coca-Cola gives you a bit of quick energy that brings you back so refreshed so quickly and with as few calories as half an average juicy grapefruit. Stop at the fountain where Coke is served. Then you can relax with the most asked for soft drink in the whole world. Bright and bracing Coca-Cola. Give yourself a break. Have a Coke. Well, that's enough for today. Now for a lively lift. Ice-cold Coca-Cola. There's no waistline worry with Coke, you know.
2: Mmm, another thing, the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. As you can hear from the old-fashioned commercial, it was thought that Coke could even be good for you. Many people would disagree today, but the wholesome, home-filled flavor of Coke perhaps does more for the soul than for the body.
3: And that's the cool thing is, you know, that people come in and they're like, I mean, they love Coke. I mean, they just, that's just a part of, you know, my, my grandmother, I mean, she was 90 years old. She still wanted to have her little coach, you know. I mean, it was, it was something that was very, very important to her.
2: I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And great job, as always, Faith. And by the way, I think of Brighton Bracing all the time when I drink my Coke, and it's a lively lift still for me. And as Jesse and I completely agree, and we're nodding during the piece, that cane sugar and those Mexican cokes—that's the real deal. That they're available now all over the United States. Well, it's just such a blessing. And we're a bunch of coke addicts here, and I'm chief addict, addict addict-in-chief here at our American stories. The Coca-Cola story, a classic American story, here on our American stories.